That's speaking more directly to the children among us. Kids, do y'all know what today is? Christmas. And did anybody get the chance to open presents before church this morning? Some of us. All right, did anybody receive a lump of coal? Anybody? Who gets coal for Christmas? Bad people? Miners? Well, there's a song I know, maybe you've heard it before. It goes something like this. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. And that's the question leading up to Christmas, isn't it? Have you been naughty or nice this past year? Are you on the naughty list or are you on the nice list? And maybe I'm overthinking a little bit, but isn't that like a terrible question? Have you ever thought how awful of a question that is? Are you on the naughty or the nice list? It's so frustrating. I have a lot of questions about it. I'm going to share with you some of those. Maybe you've thought of some of these yourself. First of all, it's so vague. It's not entirely clear what Santa's moral or ethical standards are. How do you know that what you're doing is what Santa wants you to do? Or how do you know what you're doing is something he doesn't want you to do? And how long are we talking about? Is it all the way since last Christmas? Or does it start in the new year? Or is there some other time? Do I seriously have to be nice the whole entire year to get on the nice list? And if I'm naughty, maybe sometime in February or March or April, is there anything that I can do to get myself back on the nice list? Are there second chances, third chances, fourth chances, or hundredth chances? We also watched Home Alone 2 the other day. Great, great movie. But in it, someone says the following. They say, good deeds that you do on Christmas Eve, they count extra. I don't know where she got that from. But is that true? Are there some good deeds, depending on when you do them or who you do them to, that somehow count extra? Is it just about doing more good deeds than bad deeds, like a balance, like a scale? If I do more good deeds than bad deeds, then I'll get on the nice list. Or are there some good deeds that are so good that one single good deed outweighs anything bad you could do the entire year? And lastly, does Santa care more about our actions or motivations? What if you do naughty things but for nice reasons? What if you do nice things but for naughty reasons? What if you don't actually do something to your brother or your sister, but you think bad and terrible thoughts about what you want to do to them? Does that count? Does that count against you? And all these things might seem like kind of funny and silly questions to ask at Christmas time, but I would venture to guess that there are many people, including maybe some of us, who ask the same kind of questions when it comes to God's gift of salvation and eternal life. Because that question, are you on the nice list or are you on the naughty list, it's the version of the same question that says, what must I do to receive or obtain eternal life and salvation? Is it like Christmas? Is it based on whether I've been naughty or nice, whether I've done enough good in my life to outweigh the bad? Or is there a completely different standard by which we are judged? And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. 
So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this Christmas morning as Graham um, just so movingly prayed for us earlier. We thank you for the gift of your Son who brings an entirely different standard for us, one that is not about whether we have been naughty or nice, but is about the great love that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we reflect upon the glorious truths of the gospel this morning, may our hearts be encouraged. May we be be strengthened in our faith. And may we go forth with hearts full of joy and gladness on this Christmas morning, knowing that we are loved by Christ and in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I know we have some visitors for us, or visitors with us this morning. Welcome. We've been going through this past Advent season about a series based on our statement of faith. So we have a new statement of faith at our church, and I've been calling it the statement of our first principles, meaning the statement of faith is filled with the core beliefs of our church that define who we are, and that determine everything that we do as a church. And our statement of faith It's printed for you in the bulletin. It's not five, even though there's five different paragraphs, it's not like five disconnected or independent sections that aren't related to one another. They actually build, each part actually builds upon what comes before it. Because we cannot speak coherently or confidently about salvation unless we first recognize and know who God is. Trinitarian in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how he has revealed himself to us, that is through his holy scriptures. So the only reason that we can speak this morning about salvation is because we first talked about who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how he communicates with his people through his holy word. And what then does the Trinitarian God say to us in his holy scriptures about salvation? I'm going to read it for us. If you can follow along in your bulletin. Here at Cherrytown Christian Church, we believe that salvation and eternal life are unearned gifts from God which we receive through faith in Jesus Christ and not through our good works. We also believe, though, that good works are the necessary fruit of our faith. And we offer ourselves for Christian service to this broken world as an expression of our love of God and our neighbor. So this morning we're going to talk about the two parts of our salvation. The first is, what are we saved by? And the second is, what are we saved for? So first, what are we saved by? This is the ground of our salvation. This is what we mean when we say salvation and eternal life are unearned gifts from God that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ and not through our own good works. And we're going to look at that, or we're going to talk about that by looking at our passage this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. It's printed in your bulletin, and I want you to pay special attention to verse 4. Because verse 4 is where everything hinges. There's a stark contrast between verses 1 through 3 and the following verses. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in these first three verses, what Paul is, the Apostle Paul is describing is our natural condition apart from God. But listen to the next three verses, beginning with the all-important verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
even when everything in verses 1 through 3 was true about us, that is when he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seat us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice what there is between verses 3 and 4. There's nothing. There's nothing about repentance. There's nothing about reforming your life or getting your act together. Stopping the sins that weigh you down. God doesn't send you to your room so you can think about what you have done before he grants you his salvation. You know, the Apostle Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, he says that precisely the moment you were dead in your sins and trespasses, when you had no hope, that's when God saves you. Not because of anything you have done, but because of his great love for you in Jesus Christ. Here in these verses, as often occurs in the New Testament, salvation is described in a way that theologians called union with Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard of this idea before, but this idea that everything, all the blessings of our salvation come as a result of the fact that you have been united by faith to Jesus. Notice how all the actions described are in the past tense and how they're all connected with Christ. God has made us alive, past tense, with Christ. God has raised us up, again, past tense. He's already done it, with Christ. God has seated us in the heavenly places, with Christ. You see, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and his finished work for you on the cross, then all those things are already true of you. God has already raised you up. God has already seated you with Christ, not because of anything that you have done or will do one day, but because by faith you are united with his son, Jesus Christ, in his life and his death and his resurrection. So the Apostle Paul makes it very clear this salvation that he gives to you is undeserved. They are unearned gifts. Verse 8 For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So Paul describes grace in three different ways, and they're all basically saying the same thing. It's not your own doing. Grace is not your own doing. Grace is the gift of God. Grace is not by works. The question is why? Why did God design salvation this way? And we're given the answer, we're given two reasons, one in verse 7 and one in verse 9. Grace is the free, unearned salvation that we have in Jesus. Verse 7. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9, God gives us his grace as a gift so that no one may boast. And what this means is that it's not just the fact that we're unable to save ourselves. Like, that's true. None of us can save ourselves. But God purposely designed salvation so that we can't contribute anything. He does everything for us. From beginning to end, God is the one who sends his son. The son, in obedience to the father, he accomplishes salvation by his work on the cross. And then the spirit applies that salvation into our lives, our hearts, and our minds. All so that God himself might receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. The reason why God's grace is free is so that God might get all the glory for it. 
In the book of Revelation, a lot of times people read the, Revelation, the book of Revelation as something that's far off in the distant future, right? One day we'll all die, we'll go to heaven, we'll be with Jesus, and we'll be praising and worshiping him forever. And that's all true. But much of the book of Revelation is not about the far off future, but it's about the present moment today. It's about what's happening in heaven right now as people are worshiping God along with us. And in Revelation chapter 5, it says what the saints in heaven are praising God, saying, verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That is the song that's being sung in heaven right now. And that's the song that's going to be sung in heaven forever. None of it, none of it is, look at us. Look at the great things that we have done. But it's all deflecting all glory and honor and praise to God. Because he is the one who has accomplished all of our salvation. We have nothing to contribute. No boasting. Because if you have an ounce of boasting before God, then that means you're not really seeing Jesus for who he really is. Jesus has paid it all. The salvation that we have is a free gift from God, unearned, not by our good works. So that's what we're saved by. We're saved by grace through faith. But that's not the end of our salvation. God saves us for a purpose. And that's found in the very last verse in our passage, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works, they're not the grounds of our salvation, meaning they're not the reason that we're saved. We're not saved because we are good people or we do good things. But they are the fruit of our faith, meaning every true Christian will give evidence of the fact that they are saved in their obedience to God's greatest two commandments. So if you're familiar with the story of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, one day— I'll read the passage, but basically uh, a Pharisee is going to come up to Jesus, a lawyer, a teacher of the law, and he's going to ask him a question to test him. And this is the question that he asks. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So out of all the hundreds of laws in the entire Old Testament, which is the greatest? Jesus replies to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love of God and neighbor is the natural response to a heart that has freely and undeservedly received God's gift of salvation. If you have already been saved by God, then the natural response is that you might love God and your neighbor Because the Christian call to love all peoples, including our enemies, is based upon the one who originally loved his enemies. That's God himself. Here in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul again talks about God's deep love for his people. I'm going to read it for us. This is verses 6 through 11. For while we're still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See what it says here? Similar to what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, while we were still weak, while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, that is when God reconciled us to himself. If we were saved by God when we were enemies, what right do we have to withhold love from others? Do you understand how that works? If we were God's enemies and he showed us love, then how ought we to treat those who annoy us, frustrate us, and sabotage or work against our good? The question is, do you want to be someone who follows the two greatest commandments? Do you want to be a more loving person? Do you want to have the ability and the capacity to love all peoples, even those who you consider to be your enemies? Then reflect more upon the goodness and graciousness of God that's offered to us in the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. And Christmas is a great opportunity to do that. Because Christmas is the time in which God clearly shows us the grace that He has given us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This one pastor he has this great quote about what Jesus wants most for us during Christmas time. This is what he says. What Jesus wants most for Christmas is that his people will be gathered in and then they get what they want most. Jesus wants Christians, his people, to get what they really want. And this is what they want or should want. To see his glory and then savor it with a very savoring of the Father for the Son. In other words... The goal of Christmas is that you would have the same heart for Jesus as God the Father has for God the Son. You see, Christmas is the proud love of a father looking upon his son, saying, look at him, marvel at him, wonder at him. How proud were you of your child before they had done anything— they had basically just been born into the world. They had done nothing. They had accomplished nothing. You were so full of pride and joy at the child. And said, look at this child. Look at this child and look at him and worship him because even though he's born of a manger, he is born a king. And what kind of king is he? You see, the Christmas story tells us what kind of king Jesus is by the kinds of people that God reveals Jesus to. If you remember the story... God does not reveal Jesus to the elite of the Jewish society. He doesn't reveal Jesus to business owners or landowners. He doesn't reveal Jesus to the religious leaders of the day. He doesn't reveal Jesus to the politicians and the movers and the shakers. But he reveals Jesus to shepherds and foreigners. The overlooked and the outsiders of Jewish society. Those are the kinds of people that God reveals Jesus to. And it shows what kind of heart that Jesus has for us. The Bible describes Jesus as humble and meek, gentle and lowly in heart, the lover of the overlooked and the outsiders. This is the kind of king that Jesus is and the kind of king that you can worship and obey, not out of fear or duty, 
but out of love. This is the kind of king you can turn to in the darkest moments of your life and find comfort and peace beyond human understanding. Joy and perseverance when you want to give up and a light to guide you in the darkness. You see, the Christian gospel that Jesus brings is the opposite of Christmas. Christmas says, be nice and you'll be rewarded. But the gospel says, be rewarded richly and extravagantly and then love. Be nice and be rewarded is fair, but be rewarded and then love is mercy. It's extravagant love of God. It's undeserved. and It's the only thing that will stir genuine love in your heart for God. Because when you more deeply understand that God saves you not because of anything that you have done or will do, but only because he freely loves you and he desires to save a people for his son. When you truly grasp that in your heart and you're aware of what God has done for you, then your heart will grow in love toward God and all those who are created in his image. I'd like to end this morning sharing one of my favorite stories. Um, are you all familiar with who Harold J. Ockengay is? Anybody? Well, do you all know who Billy Graham is? Heard of him, perhaps? One of the greatest evangelists of the entire 20th century? Well, Billy Graham... He said, out of everybody in my entire life, outside of my immediate family, Harold J. Ockengay was the biggest influence. So this man, Mr. Ockengay, had the greatest influence in the life of Billy Graham. And there's a PJ and, and I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and there there's a, a professor of church history who wrote an article about Dr. Ockengay, and I'm going to share an excerpt from you because I think it just so perfectly captures what we've been talking about, the nature of the salvation that God gives us and how there's nothing we can contribute, and it's all a gift from God. He reads this, early in 1985, knowing that he was dying of cancer, Harold J. Ockengay requested the elders of Park Street to gather at his home. Uh, so he was the pastor of a church in Boston called Park Street for about 35 years. So he had this tremendous ministry in the city. And so he asked all these elders of this church that he had been serving at for half of his life to gather at his home, to pray for him, and to anoint him with oil. So the elders of Park Street come to his church, and they begin to express their deep personal affection for him and their gratitude for the lifetime of ministry that he had given in service to his Lord Jesus. And they said things like, just think of all the things that God has done through you. Dr. Ockengay, you've done amazing things. God has allowed you to minister to literally millions of people. You're president of both Fuller Seminary as well as Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. You're one of the founders of the National Association of Evangelicals. And you were the one of the people who helped to give Billy Graham his start. Think of how many people were impacted by your ministry. And although Ockengay was too weak to respond, none of the comments seemed to be bringing him the peace and comfort that the elders had hoped they might be able to convey. Until one elder leaned, forwardly, leaned forward and he quietly whispered to Dr. Ockengay, Well, Harold, I suggest that when you see the master, just say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And at that, tears began to flow down 
Dr. Ockengay's cheeks. When you stand before God, your creator, what good that you have done in your life will you point to? Will it somehow be enough to outweigh all the bad? Will God's perfect standard be lessened simply because you tried your best and maybe you did better than most? Or will you point to Jesus? Jesus Christ, freely given for you. The one who was slain for your sake and resurrected for your salvation. And will you say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. So please read with me together the portion that is highlighted in your bulletin. What we believe to be true about the salvation that God gives us. We believe that salvation and eternal life are unearned gifts from God, which we receive through faith in Jesus Christ and not through our good works. We also believe that good works are the necessary fruit of our faith, and we offer ourselves for Christian service to this broken world as an expression of our love of God and neighbor. For the last time this year, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it almost seems too good to be true. It's only natural to believe that since it's our actions that have, got, that have gotten us into trouble, then it should be our own actions that get us out of trouble. Yet that's not the gospel of grace that you've revealed to us in your holy scriptures. We rejoice so deeply this morning. That you, because of your great love for us and your merciful nature, your joy in saving sinners, that you have sent us your son, Jesus Christ, born of a manger, worshipped by shepherds and angels, who grew up to live a perfect life that we could not live and died a perfect death that we could not die in order that we might be raised again with him, united with him in true life and hope to the glory of our Heavenly Father. I pray, God, that this year, this upcoming year, you would strengthen our hearts in faith, that you would unite us closer together as a church family, that we would love one another, and that we would love our enemies as well, knowing that you loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. When we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself. May you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see Christ more clearly in order that we might not boast of ourselves, but boast only in him. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.